we're going to continue on the FAQ list, all right? I've got two things laid out for today. Um, last week we said, can I be saved if I've ever done this sin? Is there, is there a sin too far for, you, for Christ not to save the lost sinner? And we answered that as no, and we gave multiple uh, chapter and verse references, for, and I read them. There were, towards the end, I was running out of time. There were a handful of things I didn't read. I just gave you passage references. Um, if you forgot what they are, you can always listen to it again on the podcast. Just go towards the end, the last five minutes of the podcast. I did post it. You can go to the last five minutes of the podcast, and that's where I started having to speed up because I looked at the clock and thought, nope, Roy, you're too wordy. You're running out of time. So today I've got two other questions, which at the end, I, uh, last week, Jody said, don't you like how, how optimistic Roy is? This is after we stopped recording the class was over. He said, don't you like how optimistic Roy is? He says we're going to try to get through two questions next week. Well, we are going to try to get through two questions today. And the, 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 first, the, the first one we're going to do, so FAQ number two, is does the passage where Jesus says, go and sin no more, mean we are to live above or without any sin? Can the Christian, can the born-again believer, live a life with no sin? Do any people believe in what's known as sinless perfectionism? You are sanctified to the point that you no longer sin on this earth. I'm not talking about glorification in the next part of life, the third stage of salvation, where you're given the new resurrection body and you're, you're basically an eternal being who will be living with Christ, with God, in the eternal sphere, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, we know that people don't sin in that, right? There's no sin enters into the kingdom of God. But does that mean that while we're here on earth, we will live above sin? Okay. A <laughs> uh, short answer is no. Uh, and, and I said no one but Christ has ever lived a sinless, perfect life. It is part of his uniqueness and his role as Messiah. It's part of his role as kinsman redeemer. The fact that a, a human being would be the one to redeem humankind, right? God humbled himself to come down into flesh. Um, I used to say this a lot in the class I used to teach that your adversary is Satan, right? And, and that's literally what his, what his name means, Satanus, is that he's the adversary, he's the enemy. And what does it mean? What does is, what is, what is the Bible warn you about it? To beware that Satan is like a, your adversary is like a lion roaming the earth, seeking someone to devour, right? So I, I paraphrase that in modern English, obviously. That's not a direct quote. But uh, yeah. Satan is here to, to kill and destroy. He wants to utterly destroy. Now, what does a lion do to its prey? It rips it, it tears it open, eviscerates it, so that no life can continue in that animal. And then it shares it with its young. They feed the young off, off of whatever they've killed, their prey. Well, you're the prey of Satan and, and the devils, the demons. So why is that? I believe it's because, this is a personal theory here, but I believe it's because Satan hates you. He hates you for the simple fact that God made you in his image. It's the, we're the only creation made in his image. We're the only ones that he gave that, that special relationship, right? We're the only ones that he deigned to actually condescend. That's a good word there. He condescended, meaning he, he decided to humble himself and actually be one of us. God's never done that as any other thing he's created. 
so we're, we're special in that sense. Don't get feeling good about yourself because you're still a sinner. <laughs> but we are special in the sense that we're a unique creation. And uh, the Bible says we're the apple of God's eye. So, um, but the uniqueness of Christ is that he was the blameless one, the spotless lamb, the perfect, uh, well, okay, last week was Yom Kippur, right? And on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War from 1973, you had the Hamas terrorist incursion there in the state of, of Israel. Well, Yom Kippur means day of, Yom is a day in Hebrew. Kippur is to atone for sin. So Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It's the highest holy day of their calendar. It's on that day that the spotless lamb is brought. That was the day that the high priest would go into the temple and put the, the lamb's blood on, in the Holy of Holies upon the Ark of the Covenant. There was, above it, was uh, the cherubim and their wings came together and the mercy seat made of gold that laid on top of, of the ark, the blood was poured upon that, that uh, ornament there, the mercy seat. And the Holy Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory, would come down during that time and fill the whole Holy of Holies. Now, the priest had to be washed thoroughly, clean clothing. He had to have on the ceremonial robes. He had to have prayed and asked forgiveness and put a, put a sacrifice in for himself before he could ever do this role. Why? Because if he had a blemish on him, and I don't mean that he was perfect, but if the high priest was hiding a secret sin, God might strike him dead because he's in the holy place. There is a rabbinical legend that they tied a cord to the back of his, of his belt so that if something happened he was in there too long, they pulled on it in case they pulled out a dead body. You see what I mean? I don't know, I know, I know. But that's, that's how holy God is. See, we don't realize... And, and, and Paul talks about the uniqueness and the specialness of the church age, that we can commune with God and the Holy Spirit actually resides in us. That's not how it worked in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came and went as he pleased. He was there one, at one point, and then on Saul's life, giving him power, empowering him, and then he left, and Saul knew it. He was there with Samson, and then he left, and Samson knew it. Well, Samson didn't know it at first because he was a very prideful man, very stubborn man. He was probably named Roy. Samson probably means Roy in, in Hebrew, if you translate it to English. He's a very prideful, stubborn, hard-headed man, and he, he kept doing stupid things, right? He violated that Nazarite vow over and over again, yet God had, mer had mercy, right? Um, so we, we see an example of how God's mercy in that one man's life. Now, there's an interesting end to Samson, and I want to get off Samson in a second. I've always found Samson fascinating because, you know, we all know about how they, they, they blind him and they tie him up like, a, like, a, like, a, like an ox or, or donkey pulling a gristmill. He's basically grinding wheat for the Philistines, right? And they laugh and mock at him and all that stuff. Well, as they are gathered in one of their temples and they have him basically tied between the pillars... He prays to God for one more feet of strength. Give me back the power I had before so that I can kill these Philistines. Now, that's, that's strange enough to pray for, but what's the purpose of it? He's going to kill himself. He knows he won't survive. He's bringing the pillars down. So the portico on the temple is going to crash on top of him. The entire roof is going to come in on him made of stone, right? So he knows what he's doing, and God allows it. God answers his prayer, and he kills the Philistines. says he killed more Philistines in that day 
and more enemies of the people of God in that one day than he had in his entire ministry prior to that. We don't know exactly how long he'd been out of pocket, how long he'd been held captive and paraded around. This was the once mighty Samson, now he's our blind slave. But uh, I don't know how long that was, but it was long enough that Samson had a, had a reckoning, you know, with himself, and then asked God for one more chance. God gave it to him. It's a strange ending. Um, but if, if sinless perfectionism was unique to Christ, and it was part of his, his role, basically, as Messiah, then how can anyone possibly attain it? I put that no one can attain it. We have many Old and New Testament examples of saints falling into a sin of one, or, one time or another, right? Um, what does Paul say of himself? I'm the chiefest of sinners. He says, that which I wish to do, I don't do it. That I know to do and I don't do it. And that that I don't want to do, which is to fall back into the old flesh, right? I do it anyway. I sin daily. And this is Paul, the apostle. You know? Uh, next to Jesus, probably the greatest figure of the New Testament, right? If he was looking for an Old Testament figure to equal him, he's, he's kind of uh, the New Testament's Moses. He writes so much, right? Moses gives us the first five books, the Torah, the law of God, and he gives us the, 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 con, the confluence of the law and the gospel as found in Romans and as found in First, uh, Second Corinthians, as found in Galatians. You read those books, those four books there, and you learn, you learn a lot about how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Um, whether or not he wrote Hebrews, which is highly debated. Uh, I do think it's his message, more or less, uh, probably written down by someone else because the language is different. But um, in that, we see the whole thing about Jesus as the high priest and our intercessor. So why do we need a high priest? Why do we need Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, right? If once we are saved, we are now sinless, sinlessly perfected in Christ, we wouldn't need to ask forgiveness of sins. We don't need a high priest. We don't need a benefactor on our part. We don't need the advocate with the Father. If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate means you have a defense attorney. If the prosecutor, the accuser, is Satan saying, look what your child did for God, Jesus says, my blood covers this. He's one of mine. Pleading your case to the Father. That's a beautiful thing. There's a court in heaven. There's heavenly courts, right? On the way here, I was listening to a song from 20-something years ago, uh, Better Is One Day. It's a Matt Redmond song. Was, I was listening to the Cutlass version uh, because it, it rocks. And so anyway, uh, but better is one day in your, on your, in your courts, better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. That's a paraphrase of a, an Old Testament of a psalm, actually. Uh, so think about that. There is a court Heavenly courts is actually literal. There is constantly a spiritual warfare going on. There's a battle for your life, battle for your soul. That's always raging. Um, but we see saints falling into sin, only to be forgiven and restored by God. I said Paul tells of his struggle with his, with his flesh, his dissertation of the, of, the, of the law of God in Romans 7, especially verses 18 to 24. Let's go to Romans 7, 18 to 24. Sandy, will you look it up so I don't have to move the phone? <laughs> Forgot to bring my Bible, guys. I'm bad because I'm used to using my phone. But what I discovered in the previous week is when I do record using my phone, if I'm, you can tell I'm moving the phone around. 
Romans chapter 7, and we'll, we'll go with 18, begin there. I, I, you know me, I'm going to go back a little bit. I'm going to go back to 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing. For I'm not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. But now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my own flesh. Okay? Of our own self, we have a sin nature. Our flesh is sinful, but we've been bought, we've been paid for, we've been washed and renewed by the blood of Jesus once we are saved. But he's saying sometimes you have this fight, right? Because in my own self, I'm not good. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that it is in my own flesh. For the willing is present in me. He wants to do the right thing. But the doing of, good is, but the, doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now this is Paul, saved on the road to Damascus, baptized and had his sight restored by faith, Okay, who's been serving God going all over the Gentile world as, as the ambassador of the Jewish Messiah saying, good news, anyone can be saved. Jew, Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, slave or free, doesn't matter. And he's saying, I'm just low down and dirty on my own. I'm struggling with this all the time. I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body parts. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, other with my flesh, the law of sin. He's, he knows to do good. He wants to do good. He's trying to do good. He still stumbles and falls. This is Paul the Apostle saying this. right? It's not Roy, the normal guy here in Kentucky trying to say this. This is Paul the Apostle saying, yeah, you know, I'm writing you all this stuff which is eventually going to be canonized as Scripture and I'm just here to tell you that I'm just like you. I'm weak in the flesh and these things occur. But many believe in sinless perfectionism, okay? And it crosses a lot of denominations. I couldn't, I could look it up and tell you the different denominations, but that's not the point today. The point is there's a lot of people within the body of Christ who do believe, or those who claim Christianity, who do believe, they sincerely believe, you can live a sinless life. I believe you've heard me say this, and podcast listeners have heard me say this more than one. There was an old... There's an event that happened in my life uh, probably 40 years ago at this point, early 80s. I was down in Tennessee visiting my grandparents, and we went to my grandmother's brother's house, my, my uncle Alan. And he um, was getting into an argument with her about living above sin, sinless perfectionism. And she kept 
pointing out all of his foibles and the things he had done just that day or the day before that his wife had talked about earlier and that he'd admitted to in a sheepish grin, getting red in the face and all that. And of course, his, uh, his, his Scots-Irish uh, face was very flushed. He was getting angry. And, uh, and she was like, so then you, now you're mad at me, right? So that's another sin. You're sinning in anger because you're getting mad. You're not, you're, it's not a righteous anger because I'm not pointing out I'm not doing a sin to you. I'm just pointing out the fact that you are lying to yourself. You can't live above sin. But you can get forgiveness. He came from a very very structured, very fundamentalist background. And his view was that, yeah, you could actually achieve sinless perfectionism. And he said that he had. This was ironic. This was the weirdest thing. I've never heard a person tell me exactly when they quit sinning. But his was about eight and a half years earlier. <laughs> He knew when he had quit sinning. So that would have put it in the mid-70s. He ceased from sin and strife with the flesh. But on that day, he fell back. <laughs> now under his view, it was a very open Arminian view, on his view of salvation, that meant he probably lost his salvation that day and was going to have to get <laughs> re-saved and re-baptized. I don't know. I'm picking, but I'm just saying. That was an ongoing argument between the two of them. Now my grandfather made us leave and go outside and go hunt crawdads in the creek. So I don't, I don't know how much further that argument went on. And he said, there's two things I really despise talking about with family members. I'd rather sit at the courthouse and talk to old men about. I said, and he goes, he goes, I'm telling you, boys, it's politics and religion. <laughs> he was one of those, don't argue with the family. There's no point. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. You're agreeing. It does cause strife. It does cause strife. I, I can attest to that. And, and in, G, and in uh, John's first letter, the epistle of 1 John, we also read a stern warning to those who deny sin in the Christian's life. We're going to go to 1 John chapter 1. And we'll begin in verse 6. So 1 John chapter 1. Verse, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, that's with, with God, with Jesus, through Jesus, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. <coughs> If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous so that He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Now, this kind of sums up two things. Last week's question uh, on can you commit a sin that would prevent salvation um, or do you have to live a certain way before you can be saved? My answer to that was you cannot live a certain way to cause God to have favor on you, right? In our flesh, we can't do enough righteousness. The Bible says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags inside of God, right? So we can't do enough to get to the point where God would ever then say, okay, do you know that now you know you now you can understand what it means to be saved because you're no longer sinning. You can't stop sinning long enough to find out how to be saved. Okay? God calls sinners to repentance. <laughs> and so that puts the light of that, but you can't say that you've not sinned. So you can't, 
You can't say certain sins deny you the right to be saved and then, and then say that means because I don't commit those sins. Well, I bet you you're going to find somebody somewhere that you know who's committed a sin that you would put on that list of things you cannot do in order to be saved. The point is, any sin is enough to send you to hell because we're all in sin on our own. We inherited it. It's original sin. We inherited it from Adam. I went over all that last week. But this point that he's making here is to the church. These epistles were written to the church. And he's telling these people, you know, you can't say you don't sin. You can't be walking in the darkness. You can't be living in a habitual sin that you won't get rid of. And then say, oh, but I'm holy. I'm, I'm one of Christ's. You need to check. You need to do, as Paul said, make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're one of his. Okay? But at the same token, you can't ever completely stop sinning. We got that example from Paul, and we get this example from John. If you say you don't have any sin, you're a liar. Now you've made God a liar because he didn't save you that you would suddenly be perfect. He saved you so you could become servants of him, followers of him, disciples of Christ. And if we are disciples, followers of Christ, we will want to be more like Him. And we will grow more like Him, but we'll never be Him. You know, think about this. In the eternal state, when we're given our holy, sinless body, we still won't be like, we still won't be Christ. Okay? We're not going to have been here from all time, for one thing. We're not eternal. We'll be immortal. We're not going to die again, but we're not going to be eternal. He's always existed. He pre-exists us. Right? So we're never going to be God. We'll be more like Him Paul says we'll be like him if we'll actually see him as he truly is. We'll see him in the spirit and, the, and in the role of Christ in the flesh. Okay, We will see the nail-scarred hands. We'll actually be in, in contact with him and we'll be more like him. But it's not, I have no idea if he's going to suddenly give us perfect knowledge of everything that's ever happened on the earth. Will we know all the answers to every one of those trivial questions about history? Is it even going to be important to us anyway? You've heard the people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Christ why this. No, you're not. You're going to fall down and worship. And any, quote, crown, reward that he's given you, you're going to give back. Lay him at his feet. I always thought casting crowns picked the perfect name for humble sinners to use as a, as a name of a, a, of a Christian band. Casting crowns. We're not here to gain a crown. We're here to give something back to Jesus. Either through our worship, our praise, through our lives. Our lives are to be holy, they're to be consecrated to Him. That's sanctification, right? Set apart. But we're never going to be perfect. And the other problem that comes with that is this idea that I've attained something greater than you. And it's that same striving that you see in the work of the disciples when the wife of Zebedee comes and wants her sons to be elevated in the kingdom. She asks Jesus to give John and James a higher position. Will they be number one and number two in the kingdom? One's going to sit on your left and one's going to sit on your right? And he's and, and they're like, you know, uh, you know, you're asking God for a favor for your child, you know, basically, and uh, kind of being demanding about it. No, 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 we don't demand anything of, of God. We don't demand anything of Christ. We ask humbly, in order to receive. Now He's willing to give us good gifts, right? All good gifts, perfect gifts. Any good thing in our life has come from Him, but we don't earn it. He gives it. It's His grace. It's freely given. Um, also in John 2, the very next chapter, verses 1 and 2 continues, Now little children, he, he, I'm writing these things to you. He tells you why he's done this, why he said this about sin. So that you may not sin. 
He doesn't want you to sin. He's not giving you a license to sin, right? But he, but he wants you to know. But then he goes on. And if anyone sins, if anyone in, their, in your congregation, your church, right? This is to the church. If anyone sins, we have an advocate, that word I used earlier. We have a defense with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, the payment for our sins, and not, that propitiation, by the way, satisfies the wrath of God, right? Remember that song in Christ alone? And on that day, as Jesus on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. There's a lot of churches that want to alter the lyrics of that song and say something besides the wrath of God. But the authors, Keith Getty and Townsend, won't let them change the lyrics. So there's like um, PCA, President, Presbyterian Church in America, won't put it in their hymnal because they won't, he won't let them change the lyrics. And since he owns the copyright, they can't change the lyric. He says, no. And you're going against what you used to believe and hold in your own confession, Westminster Confession, that the wrath of God is poured out on men. It says it clearly in the scripture. He himself is propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, obviously, we still have sin because he's telling you, if anyone sins, you have an advocate. You don't have an advocate with the Father if you're still lost. That's how I know this is for Christians. The lost man has no advocate. The lost man can't come until the Holy Spirit convicts him of his sin. Then he may repent and be saved, right? Any prayer you said before you were saved was just hot air blowing. It didn't even get past the roof of your, of your, of your house. Uh, he goes on to give a checklist for how we are to search our hearts and know that we are saved there and um by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. I'm talking about the rest of that chapter in, in, in 1 John. Um, that's in 3 through 8. And we see that we are to walk as Jesus walked. And this is in obedience to God. He was always obedient to God the Father. But that is how Jesus walked. He said, I only do the will of my Father. He is our example, but we are the weaker vessels. We're having not yet been glorified. So we've not yet been resurrected and given that glorified body. Therefore, we're not capable of living fully as Jesus lived. Got to put the page on my note. Any other comments about that? That we just talked about? anything before I move on. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next question. Why are, are why, why do some Christians baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Why a Trinitarian baptism? I have been bombarded with this one multiple times, right? And I said, this is one of the most controversial especially if you're dealing with some forms of uh, Unitarians, Oneness Pentecostals or other groups, and we do have plenty of Oneness Pentecostals in this area, don't we? <laughs> and uh, a couple of the larger churches in the area are part of the Oneness Pentecostal movement. Uh, these, for the most part, adhere to the Jesus name doctrine. That is... Uh, if you ever get in a conversation with one, you'll know because they'll say something about the name, the name, you're baptized in the name, the name, the name, the name what? Well, the name of Jesus. Okay? And it's one of the more 
argumentative disagreements, I guess, that you can have with someone is over baptism, okay? Because there's other things about baptism, and we'll cover that in the future. Like I say, I won't be teaching next week, but the next time I teach, there'll be other questions that, that, you, that you frequently get asked regarding baptism. One is, does baptism have the power to save? Is it necessary to be baptized to be born again? Etc. etc. Uh, we, we could cover that, but not today. This is a very limited uh, question and answer. The one, this is, um, they believe that baptism is only to be in the name of Jesus. They will refer you to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. I'll just go on over there and, and read it real quick. Um, if you have family or friends who are in any type of the Pentecostal movement that's existed over the last hundred some odd years, and obviously I did have several family members that were involved in that, they, this, the book of Acts is the cornerstone of the New Testament to them. I'm serious. It's the cornerstone of the New Testament. It's far more important in some cases than many of the writings of Paul, the general epistles. Um, certain parts of the Gospels are sometimes set aside. Um, Acts is everything because it tells you how to set up the church, right? Well, yeah, no, it really actually doesn't. It tells you something about the history of the church, but it's not a structure for the church, okay? There's a lot going on in the first century A.D. that's not happening today, okay? And for one thing, we don't have apostles. That's right. But, but they, a lot of denominations do call certain people apostles. We don't have apostles. What was, based on what Paul talks about as his credential for being an apostle, was what? To have seen the risen Christ. Now, it blinded him... He lost his eyesight because, remember, Jesus was now in his glory, glorified at the right hand of the Father. But he saw a vision, the heavenly, heavenly vision of Jesus, but he saw Jesus there in the air. No one else, by the way, saw it. They may have noticed a bright light or they may have thought he was talking to the space, right? He was talking to the air. But he saw Jesus and was blinded. Okay? So he says, I've seen the risen Christ and spoke with him. So God was talking directly to him as like a like a prophet or like someone or like one of the disciples that had witnessed him at post-resurrection that you find in the uh, Gospels, okay? So that's his qualification. So he's the last called apostle, if you think about that. That's a special term. It doesn't exist anymore. Just calling yourself an apostle, you know, if I'm a preacher for about 20 years and I decide I want to be like a traveling guy that just goes around to various churches and does this or that. I guess I could start calling myself a bishop. But bishop is a very important title. It's an overseer, right? It's like a senior pastor. It's, it's not just to make idols out of words, to make idols and give, and give titles to people that have, no, that have a very deep biblical meaning but don't have a meaning for us today in the same sense is kind of heretical, if I'm being honest. There are no apostles. No apostles. Um, so upon the death of probably John, we believe John historically was the last one to live, all the apostles were dead. And it happened near the end of the first century. Therefore, the first century closes the apostolic age. So everything, all the signs and wonders and the miracles and the things that occurred in the book of Acts were for that period, for those people. Okay? Because... And I'm going, to give a, I'm going to give a contemporary thing. Growing up in a lot of, fun, I've told you this before, fundamentalist churches, 
you, one verse would constantly get utilized about one another sign for the end times is the old men will dream dreams and the young men and women will prophesy, and et cetera, et cetera. If you're in the book of Acts, chapter 2, where I am right now, you'll see that that occurred on the day of Pentecost. And Peter told you that this was in fulfillment of the book of Joel. These men are not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. They seem to be moving around ecstatically. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were preaching and prophesying and proclaiming things, right? And he says, no, they're not drunk. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is in fulfillment of your scripture. Because oh, he say your scripture. Because he's preaching to Jews. And he's not just preaching to Jews. He's preaching to Jews from all over the Roman Empire who had come in that day. Because Pentecost was a big deal. And they would come in on that at the end of the Feast of Tables. They would come in on that day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And they would, uh, they would have this feast. And often there would be like rabbis preaching in the streets or whatever, but this was different. And Peter preaches that day and some 3,000 people. What must we do to be saved, right? They were speaking in tongues and other things. By the tongues, by the way, and it starts telling you, it gives you a list of the names of the areas they were from. Uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. That Asia means Asia Minor, Turkey, in other words. Um, <clears throat> Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Jews and proselytes, those who had been convert, who were Gentile but had been converted. Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues. Glossolalia. Okay. The Greek word glossolalia. So they hear it in their own tongue. The gift of tongues was languages that could be interpreted miraculously by someone who's, because someone's speaking in their own language, but the other person hears it in their language, and they don't know each other, and they don't know each other's language. Now that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It can still occur. There's no, there's no definite way to say that those were finite in the sense that God couldn't use it again if he wants to. He doesn't, I don't think he uses it. It was never used as a primary thing. It was always secondary, and it was used for a specific event. It was always, when you see it being done in the New Testament, it happens at a certain point in time, at a certain area. Usually a place that's never heard the gospel. And in comes these people. Now, I know a man... He didn't enter the third heaven. I'm not going to quote Paul here. I'm not, but I know a man in this town who is a Baptist preacher who gave a testimony of being a missionary in South America and his interpreter stopped interpreting. And he says, why are you not talking? You know what I'm talking about. And they says, I don't need to. You're speaking perfect, whatever it was. He goes, I don't speak that language. And the other preacher who'd been there a while just says, keep preaching. They were hearing it because these were native Tribes, these were South American Indians living in the jungles of, do you remember which country? Did he go to Peru? I don't remember. I want to think it's Peru, but I could be wrong. I'd have to ask him. That's a fascinating story because rarely do you ever hear someone that actually tells you, no, I witnessed it. And this was, like a, this was, a, this was miraculous. And it's never happened to him again. Probably won't. Now he gave a reason why he thinks that is. We're modern, we got our technology, we're rich, we're satisfied. We think we've got just enough Jesus to get us by. We don't need it, right? We don't want it. He only delivers it to people who have a need. The gifts are for a need. Those people needed to know that Jesus was the Messiah. Those Jews from all around the world needed to know. Why am I talking about tongues? It's supposed to be about baptism in Jesus' name. <laughs> 
I am so sorry, folks. <coughs> and I've railroaded us again because now we're out of time. <laughs> Stop me sometimes, Andy. <laughs> Oh, no. Matthew 28, 19, that's where you're going. I am going to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? So, Jesus, in the Great Commission, tells us... Let's just go there. I will read this aloud, and this will be the short answer, and then we'll, we'll probably have to pick this up next time, just because I can't let it go, and I've got to stop talking about tongues. It's going to get me in trouble with... Various people that I know pretty well. Uh, we'll start with 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. Judas Iscariot had betrayed him and had already committed suicide. To the mountain which Jesus had designated to them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, this is important, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's not Satan's. It's not man's, it's not preachers, it's not the church even. But we are empowered by the one who does have the authority, Jesus. All authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of Jesus the Messiah, (laughs) our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The holy name of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Now this is Jesus speaking, and he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Drop the mic, case closed. I don't know what you do. I don't know what you do there. I've only ever said this one time. I said, what do you do with Matthew 28? You're talking about the Great Commission? Okay. Well, that's for his disciples right then and there. And I said, nah, it's for the church. He's commissioning the church. His disciples were the beginning of the church. You believe that because you believe that about Acts chapter 2, that that was the unveiling of the church on the day of Pentecost, right? The great first mission was the, the first revival right there on the day of Pentecost. Absolutely. Okay. So Jesus said baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I do know that in other places you see say repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You also see uh, be baptized in Jesus' name. You do see that. But this is my trump right here. And I'm not talking about the former president. This is the trump card. Jesus said baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's a scriptural baptism. If you're baptized in the name of Jesus only, I don't condemn you. I don't care. I care because I think the pattern is baptism in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I think it's important. But it's not going to send you to hell. On the other hand, if you hold the position that a Jesus name only baptism secures your place in the church and that anyone not baptized in the name of Jesus only is not saved and going to hell, then I have a problem with that because you're now being exclusionary based on the mode of baptism. And I have a problem with that because that's not scriptural either. You don't Condemn someone. Paul even made it clear that you don't condemn someone on what day of the week they worship on or whether or not they do or do not have holy days. Okay? We, are, we have a lot of freedom in Christ. And I'm not going to condemn Jesus' name only people as being heretical 
for the sake that they're baptized in the name of Jesus because they take those verses as being more important. That's fine. But don't tell me that I'm not going to heaven because I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because now you're wrong. You're, con- you're, con- you're playing God and judge. And the only true judge, master, and God is Jesus. And he will take care of that on the day of judgment. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. I think I'm right. But, <laughs> and I'm willing to stake my soul on it. I seriously am. If, if, they are, if they are right and they believe that Jesus' name only is the only way to be baptized, then, if, then I'm a fool. I'm a heretic. So be it. Because I believe strongly enough in the fact that that's not going to consign you to heaven or hell. Because there's plenty of people who have been baptized in the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that I believe are not born again. The lives they've lived have shown that. The paths they've led other people down. I'm talking about a lot of heretical preachers and teachers and a lot of people who claim to be Christian and then they rape, murder, pillage, and plunder. I have a problem with that. I can't keep going on because I could go for another 30 minutes on this one question and I would still be talking about tongues probably. So let's end with that. Uh, God bless you. I'll see you next week. Take care.